You're listening to The Worship Review, a podcast which evaluates contemporary Christian music for the good of the church to the glory of God. This podcast is for the whole church to encourage thoughtful engagement with the words, emotions, and ideas in our music. We hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hello and welcome back to The Worship Review. My name is Tyler and I'm joined by Colin. Hello, Colin. In this fifth series, we've been talking about songs that have won GMA Double Awards. And it occurred to us long ago, so this episode is somewhat overdue, that uh, we have been evaluating songs on a five-point scale, a five-point subjective scale, like a film review. Wait, you only just noticed that we were doing that? Bear with me, listeners. All right, let's see where this is going. Uh, it, It occurred to us long ago that uh, we evaluate songs on a subjective five-point scale, and yet uh, we had offered very little explanation for what might merit a five. If you go to our website, uh, we have a pretty clear uh, description of the various scores, the various ratings, and I'll just read those off to you, dear listeners, if you will. So, a five is a song which contains rich theological truth and little to no error, The language is specific and clear. The ideas align with scripture. A four is a song which contains some theological truth, but may have minor errors. The language tends to be clear, but may be somewhat vague, and the ideas mostly align with scripture. A three is a song which contains some theological truth, but has several minor errors, or one major error, that distracts from the song's merit. The language tends to be vague, but not overly problematic. The ideas tend to align with scripture. A two is... The song contains more error or vagueness than scriptural truth. Errors are very distracting and inhibit thoughtful worship. And one is, the song contains language which is vague or otherwise careless with language. Scriptural ideas are either completely absent or abused. Uh, As you can see from this rating scale, uh, this is far from some sort of data-driven objective rating scale, and we've never claimed to offer objective rating. Uh, And also implicit in this rating scale are a few different ideas, right? Dealing with scripture, a a song that gets a five deals with scripture in a way that we deem responsible and uh, not abusive. A song that gets a one, by contrast, deals with scripture, if at all, in in an irresponsible way. And concept of theological truth is brought up in our rating system as well. So, in addition to talking about scriptural truth, the 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 theological positions which uh, Orthodox Christians have drawn from that scripture are also held in high regard. So we talk about things like error in our uh, in our rating system, which some listeners and maybe even some musicians and songwriters in the Christian sphere might bristle at the idea that we would even uh, dare to claim that there could be error a theological error in someone's song. After all, if a song is merely someone's lived experience put in music form, then we can't really speak of error. And so it's clear that we have ideas about what makes a good worship song and what makes a song uh, suitable for public worship. So we think it would be a good idea in this episode, discuss what those things are. So Colin and I are going to have a discussion here uh, as we prepare to wrap up this fifth series, uh, essentially on what 
a great worship song. So you can see there, uh, the bar for us, uh, regular listeners to our show will know, is higher than merely what makes a passable worship song. We want a song great or good or exemplary in some way. And so uh, just as uh, a way to open things up, Colin, uh, I'll ask you, what is one thing you like to see in a worship song? Wow. Okay. Fantastic uh, question and a fantastic framing of, of what it is that we're certainly trying to do. One big thing, and this isn't the only big thing or the ultimate thing, but if we think about the history of music in the church, up until very, very recently, it seems like among the most important was use of Scripture. Either either churches were in large part singing Scripture, and this was the case just a few centuries ago. You would go into just about any church, and the songs that you sang almost entirely out of Scripture. I mean, in, a, in an almost verbatim way. So singing the Psalms in particular, or a few of the sections of poetry in, in other parts of Scripture. And it is only fairly recently in the 2,000-year history of the church, and then, of course, if we think about the longer, the thousands and thousands of years of history of God's people singing to him, it's only the last little, last little bit where God's people have really opened up what is possible to sing to God, and have largely been okay with that in terms of, at least if we look at on the ground, what's actually happening in churches. You would now find it very difficult, I think, to find a church which sings almost entirely or even entirely just God's Word. That, that, that just, you, you would really struggle to find a church now, and that is a major shift. So, so yeah, there needs to be Scripture in concept, at least, I would think, in song that is sung congregationally in church. And I guess that's one other thing that I'd say, Tyler, just to distinguish. You, you spoke quite a bit in your opening comments about worship music. And I think that's key to remember. We, we've evaluated a lot of songs on this podcast, most of which have been what you would call worship music. And by that, we sort of mean congregational music, music that is sung in church congregations on Sunday morning. There have been some instances where we've looked beyond that. But what we're really evaluating when we evaluate the music on this podcast, in large part, and we try to mention when we're, when we're not doing this, we're evaluating songs that are sung in a congregation. And in that instance, you, you have got to have Scripture at least present in concept, in my opinion. I think, I mean, I, otherwise I'm not sure what the point is of singing something that is not rooted in the objective truth that God has delivered and preserved over the course of millennia. What do you think, Tyler? I certainly agree with you there, and I think I want to put, uh, I guess I want to elaborate on a couple of points, because you've mentioned a few different topics in your answer. So you've mentioned the significance of Scripture in the worship of God throughout millennia. That's uh, certainly an aspect I'd like to emphasize. Uh, I think you've also implicitly uh, described the purpose of singing. So when, you, when we say these are songs that are sung corporately on a Sunday by God's people, um, there is an implicit purpose behind that. So we don't, and I think this gets to uh, the church's design for worship as a general category, not merely the music. But what are we doing 
on a Sunday morning? Why are we there? Why are we gathered? And so we sing these songs, not because we have to tick a box that says songs ought to be sung, but rather we sing these songs to glorify God, to rejoice in him and to rejoice in what he has done. And uh, as you mentioned, the Psalms, many Psalms do that really, really clearly, uh, really, really effectively uh, and address that specifically. They, they are talking all about what God has done in his people's history. Uh, and so when we talk about songs that uh, may be popular on Christian radio and may even make their way into the church, that's also something we're looking for. Why are we singing this song in a church? What does this have to do our God and his gospel? When we talk about things like, like I mean, you, you've mentioned uh, how much worship has changed from the early church period and beyond. Uh, many church historians, and I am not one of them, and I would not claim to be, uh, and it would be good to, if you if you know some, we'd love to have them on the podcast. That would be great. We'll gleefully talk about the, well, maybe not gleefully, these are historians after all. <laughs> we'll readily talk about how, for example, in the Western church, the organ revolutionized church music. And so you can imagine the medieval period before anything like an organ before Bach has touched the music of the church, we live in a world after the organ entered churches and took over churches largely in the West. And after the organ came uh, choirs and bands and kind of pop-esque um, after rock and roll took over American music, we had rock and roll-esque music taking over the church. So I think it's good for us to situate ourselves somewhat historically and just remember the tradition that we inherit uh, and not not forget that. Yeah, and it's not like that... Um, I mean, this is only something that I've done more recently as I've just learned a little bit more about church history and the history of church music over the course of the past few years. I just didn't reflect on the fact that there's a long and slow process of the church bringing in the music of the culture and then kind of making it a part of the church and then reactions to that. And then, you know, pendulum swings towards new changes in the culture. And then we're just in a moment in that longer story. And, you know, so when, that when, folksy music was uh, hip in during the second great awakening and you know people are you know going out west and claiming lands and there aren't a lot of uh you know there there are just new new kinds of music that are, that are coming in i mean there there are a lot of tunes that are written in that time in the church and for church music that come right out of the same kind of music that people were singing as part of this massive cultural and almost migratory shift. And again, you said the same thing about like rock and roll. I, I don't know what's going to happen with music today, how that's going to come into the church, but it's going to like the paradigm, the kind of uh, soft rock or whatever this is, that's been, that's been in the church for the last, I don't know, 25, 30 years. Um, that paradigm has got to break soon. I mean, I just, that's, that's jumped the shark a while ago and I'm sure. So, so who knows whatever, who knows what's going to come next, but it will probably be quite different than what exists now. And I think we're already seeing a shift from that rock 
oriented music to what I think is really popular now, aside from hip hop music, uh, a kind of retro looking synth music. And you see that already beginning to take hold in Hillsong's music, for example. A lot of their have these so-called breakdown where it's it's hardly even a rock song at that point it's much more like the climax of an electronic dance song that hits and then you have these synthetic uh sounds popping up and playing heavy bass beats and you know droning ambient pads so i think we may be in the middle of that shift right now i don't know where it's going I mean, I have a very crazy idea, and and I have a very crazy idea, but I'm going to go ahead and throw it out there. Why not? Because we don't have a song to review today. So I'm a historian of ancient history, and through most of human history, religious worship in the pagan world has actually been tied to various forms of what you might call um, ecstasis, uh, where, where you get the, we get the term ecstasy from it. So... Um, either sort of hyping oneself up to the point of kind of losing oneself or even in some cases taking substances that aid in that. And of course, the Western world in particular is rapidly legalizing various drugs um, and the culture is embracing. uh, I mean, I work at a university. I mean, students are, even the students in my class that are paying attention some of them are paying attention because they're actually on some kind of substance that helps them do that. I, I wonder, and this is going to sound crazy to people, I wonder if in 20 years there will be Christian concerts where people are kind of openly uh, experimenting with the idea that they need to be at least emotionally going somewhere, or like kind of like hyping themselves up just by means of physical exercises or mental exercises or maybe even literally being encouraged to come in on some kind of substance obviously older people or people my age right now would bristle at the idea of people willingly doing something like this in a church service Um, but 50 years ago people would have absolutely been horrified at the idea of fog machines uh, electric guitars young people dressed in certain, you know, in ways that seem somewhat sexualized, they would be, they would have never imagined that something like that would be mainstream in the church. And here we are. So I don't know, Tyler, that, that maybe that's going out on a limb there, but I'm just offering, if you want to, if you want a hot take, that's my hot take. Yeah. I I thought you were going a different place with that. I'm sure you would. I'm sure you couldn't have predicted that. (laughs) I thought you were going to say they would have bristled at the idea that we would have coffee in our sanctuary (laughs) of all places. And I I don't think that would be crazy. I I can imagine that would have been somewhat of a revolutionary idea. Um, I I noted for myself, uh, scripture must be used uh, tastefully and responsibly. And that sounds great. We all love tasteful and responsible usages of scripture. But what does that mean exactly? Uh, I think for for my ratings, that can mean, uh, it can be a literal scriptural passage that is included in a song. That would be usage of scripture, but that alone does not make something reasonable, responsible, and tasteful, right? Because you could take something from scripture and use it to mean something other than the original intended meaning of the verse. 
and it would be completely irresponsible. Um, like, like the one of the most common ones uh, th- that just comes to my mind uh, is uh, something like "I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me," uh, where Paul talks about a list of sufferings he's enduring for the sake of the gospel. Uh, and in fact, I'm just gonna, I'll just read that one. This is in Philippians four ten to thirteen. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I think a lot of times when we see this verse on coffee mugs and t-shirts and things, people are thinking of abundance and they're thinking uh, abounding, but they're not thinking of hunger and need and they're not thinking of being brought low. And so if you use that verse in a song, I would like to see in that same song discussion of both abundance and hunger and being filled, things like that. Uh, that is so going beyond merely actually employing it in the sense in which it was originally written to its intended audience, I think would be a criterion for me. That's what I mean by responsibly and tastefully. Taste, obviously, these are both categories with blurry boundaries, right? What makes something tasteful and not tasteful? That's hard to say. But I think employing it in the sense in which it was written is at least one firm foothold. Yeah. And one of the things that we've seen, I I would say more often than I would like in some of the songs is, okay, use of scripture, a phrase, maybe even a a real solid concept. But yeah, misusing it is is totally inapplicable or, 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 or irrelevant even, or perhaps even contrary to what scripture has to say. I mean, there, there's just too often where I think we've seen that in some of the music. Absolutely. I, sorry, I, I don't want to harp on too many uh, examples of this, but but just I saw one today and it's hard for me not to think of this. So from Psalm 46, uh, we have this phrase, God is in the midst of her, she shall not be moved. Okay, just just to take that out of context for a minute. That is what I saw on a sticker on someone's water bottle. And I don't know why she had this on her water bottle, and I didn't ask her. Uh, Maybe I should have. If you put that on your shirts and walls and water bottles, thinking that God is in the midst of her is primarily about you as uh, a Christian, I think you are misapplying that, at least that may be a later application that you can go to. The The full context is there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. The nations rage. The kingdoms totter. He utters his voice. The Lord, The earth melts. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. It is not so much about the individual being made up into this powerful fortress for her own sake, 
but actually taking refuge in God. And being part of a community. I mean, the city of God is, is this the, well, the image in Psalm 46 is like the people of God gathered in, in one place. Exactly. So we like to see songs that don't just take scripture, but actually um, use scripture as it was written uh, in its context and with the sense that it originally had. Not just with the words that it originally had, but with the sense that it originally had. Tyler, can I ask you a question off that? To what extent does a song need to have, say, the name of Christ or um, core elements of the gospel or something like that? Like, to what extent does a song need to drill down even deeper, in your opinion? Okay, so uh, I think I differ from you here, okay? I don't think that those are deal breakers for me, and here's why. Uh, I think, this is one of the criteria that I wrote, so I'll just, I'll, I'll read it off just to be clear. One of the things I wrote is that it is self-contained. It does not require more than one minute of explanation. So you can take, and that's obviously, it's an arbitrary line, but I want I want to make the point pretty clear. You should not require more than 60 seconds to tell people what you're singing about if you're about to lead in the service. If a song does not mention Christ, does not name him, does not mention uh, an aspect of the gospel in a way that's clear, it should not take much time to make sense of that. It's not, well, when we sing about waves crashing on the shore. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're already behind at that point. Yeah. But, but something like, oh, when we are singing to you, means God. So think about God when we say that, you know, something like that, where it's, it's more of a one-to-one correspondence and more transparent. But um, yeah, I think, for example, a song of praise could be directed to God, the triune God, and not mention Christ specifically. It could be a song of praise to God the Father. It could be a song of praise to God the Holy Spirit, uh, and not therein mention Christ explicitly. Obviously, it's very hard to write a song about uh, one of the three persons of the Trinity without in some way mentioning uh, the other two, at least implicitly. And then as far as the gospel is concerned, I think this is this is probably a question of framing your services. But at some point in your service, there ought to be some gospel truth that is um, understood and praised by the people. But it needn't be every song, in my opinion. Yeah, I've I've uh, I've moved on this issue quite a bit, especially the more I read the Psalms and and sing them. Um, and reflect on them. I mean, probably if you would have talked to me maybe four years ago or even three years ago, I would have been much more. I would have been. I would have been much more concerned about songs that did not explicitly talk about Christ or did not explicitly have kind of core elements of the gospel contained within them. Uh, I'd not say I'm. I'm not quite to the point where say Jason Dorsey is. Like we talked with him, interviewed him. I, yeah, the gospel needs to be present in the service. It needs to be very clear, very explicit, and the songs should reinforce the gospel. And um, whether in the song itself or by way of, as you say, the explanation should really follow from the song. Like it should, it, it should. This the song should not distract in any way from the gospel, but should help us make very easy, straightforward connections to the gospel in obvious, clear, and coherent ways. I don't mean to put you on the hot seat, but you you mentioned just a few moments ago, so this is way too hard not to talk about. You mentioned that Psalm 46 is your favorite 
Imagine if someone wrote a worship song and it was just the text of Psalm 46, which does not explicitly mention Christ. Exactly. Does not explicitly mention the gospel. Obviously, taking refuge in the city, you can draw, uh, you know, gospel inferences from that. But in and of itself, it is a psalm about God's majesty and glory and power. And I think those are all good things to praise him for. So, yeah, and God's salvation too. And it, so, yeah, so say, I mean, again, some people will really bristle at this, but it's just a thought experiment. Let's say Psalm 46 was not Psalm 46, and we just had a song that had those words in it. It would be very easy for somebody to exp- and say, hey, look, this is, a so- this is about God's salvation. Christ has saved us in the same way. Like, like the way that God goes out and just melts the army and destroys the army. Like, that's what Christ does. Uh, that's what Christ will do on the final day. Um, this is, th- you know, they're just easy and obvious ways to make connections without huge leaps in any way. Another criterion that I have, and I think this is probably going to, br- I don't know what you would say, rustle some jimmies? I don't upset some people, maybe? I think that in a worship song specifically, not a, not a piece of music that is intended to be art for its own sake, in a worship song specifically, the music must be treated as a means to an end and not an end in itself. And I think that is probably why uh, you and I, you and I, I think are probably similar in our opinions on that. But why I, I think a lot of Christian musicians uh, would differ from us on that point, uh, because I think they they want to make art. They are Christian musicians. They want their music to be art, and I think that's fine and that's good for them to produce art. But I think the songs that we sing in worship. I'm not saying they're not art, but what I'm saying is their their purpose is actually a different and higher purpose than than art for art's sake. Oh man, I probably rustled some Jimmy saying that worship is a, a higher purpose than art because someone will say, "Well, art is worship," and I have no doubt that, like for the individual artist, I have experienced uh, worship while creating something beautiful for God. But the corporate worship of God by His people on the Lord's Day is different from the individual worship of creating a magnificent piece of art. And so the music, I would say, in a worship song needs to be a tool. And I include the vocals in that, too, and I have more comments on that later. Uh, It needs to be a tool to foster worship in the congregation and not the thing in and of itself. Yeah, I think this is why, okay, this is why it's really good to have this conversation, because this is all flying under the radar when we're reviewing songs, and and people don't know, we haven't said this explicitly. You and I both think the same about this, clearly, which is the Sunday morning, the, the Sunday service, the church service, the corporate church service where we're gathered is a separate and distinct and meaningful thing. What happens in that place and time has a special significance as opposed to when I am in my car singing or when I am painting or, you know, when I am whatever, writing poetry, right? Or whatever it is that people... And these are all worship. I'm not saying they're not worship, but it's different. Yes. But the Sunday morning is different for numerous reasons. I mean, we don't even need to... I mean, just logically, it's different. It's corporate. 
Um, you know, we have scriptural, you know, we have scriptural evidence as to it, it, you know, when two or more are gathered that Christ is there. I mean, I don't need to go into the whole litany of proof texts about why it's really, why, why Sunday, why the corporate worship of the, uh, why the church's corporate worship of God is unique I, I, I presumably don't need to go through that, but not everybody understands that or at least has kind of explicitly engaged with that. Yes, and that is why when we're reviewing worship songs, a song that otherwise for a radio hit or anything like that, which we would have no issue with, we will pick harshly sometimes uh, because it's being used in a church service for the worship of God. And, and at least for the hosts of the show, that that puts it in a different category. Yeah, that's right. With much more stringent requirement than than something else, and so I think this gets to before we talk about the music some more. Um, what is worship itself? And I think if you look up a dictionary definition, uh, which I'll just do for the sake of uh, argument, the feeling or expression of reverence and adoration for a deity. I think that's that's fine. But but you notice there are different things even in that one definition, right? The feeling or expression of in in Christian worship, I would say it's both of those things and more. There is a feeling of reverence and adoration, that, so it impacts the emotions. But I think in 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 Christian worship, there's also uh, an intellectual cognizance of some truth about God or about what he has done or about how he, one of his attributes, um, that something outside of ourselves. Yes. And it's, it actually far from distracting from the emotion. I think it actually amplifies that emotion. If you can exactly really meditate on his law or on truth, you can actually express emotion even more, more powerfully. And so I think there's an intellectual aspect, there's an emotive aspect of it, but more than that, and I think going once again above and beyond that definition, it's not merely a feeling, it's not merely an intellectual ascent, but there's actually an expression of that, a verbal expression of that, an outward reflection of that. And so we don't merely worship with our eyes and mouth shut, right? Because theoretically, you could have both feelings and intellectual uh, experiences that were purely in your head. But uh, for one reason or another, God has called his people to gather and collectively, verbally, <laughs> with songs and music and uh, in the Psalms also, I mean, dancing and symbols clashing and things like that too. We are meant not just to internally praise, but actually direct that to external action. Yeah. And I think it's, so you said the word collective there and you were, so then that's why it's got to be something objective, something outside of ourselves, something to do with God, not just something outside of ourselves, but, uh, but God, because if it's corporate, if it's collective, if it's, if it's something we do together, it can't be subjective because each person's subjective experience is different by def, by definition of what subjective means. Um, we could be pretty close, but if we have objective truth, then we can all look at it, and we might praise in different ways. Okay, I'm not I'm not critiquing that. Um, but when we 
when we sing together, we're reflecting. It's a mode of worship that reflects the object of our worship. We're, we're all focusing on one God, three persons, one God. And so it makes sense that our mode of worship, singing with voices, would be in unison, right? It's just kind of stylistically. Um, it, just, it just kind of seems... It just seems to flow. And again, we've got advice in Paul's letter to uh, first letter to the Corinthians, um, which which reinforces that. Like, like God is not a God of chaos. Like when we worship him, there should be order. There should be a kind of unity in the way that we do it. And Paul talks about outsiders seeing it. But I think also, and you know, also there is the idea that that um you know, God himself is a God of order. I mean, it's not just that we're doing it so that people won't think that we're weird. We also worship him in particular ways because that's what, that's what he demands. That's, what he, that's who he is. It reflects his own character. Absolutely. That goes back to what you're saying about emotion. People think that subjective equals emotional. And again, that, that's just, that's a really superficial way of thinking about how, our, our, like, how deep emotional reaction to God would work. Emotional reaction to, sub- to subjective experience, okay, that's, that's meaningful for sure. Um, but that also cannot be shared in, exact, in the same way, co- corporately, that emotional reaction and objective truth. Again, something about God's character, scripture that describes God or what he's done, his actions, whatever it is. Like, we're all on the same page. And there's a power there that comes from us all um, that you know experiencing that subjectively. And and again, the subjective experience of that, the emotions it brings might be different just because of our own backgrounds and the way we've seen God work in different ways. Like if we're singing about singing about God's provision, one person might be thinking about God providing them with a job in a, in the midst of a time when they didn't have a job. Somebody might think of God providing. A, a child when they were praying for a child someone but someone might just be thinking more um more just about god providing salvation but in all of those cases there's one object one truth um and one mode of singing about it or worshiping but then it because everybody knows that everybody else is having this experience it 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 brings out a kind of emotional depth um and it, it really, because the body is experiencing it, different individ- members of the body, but all together and all focused on one objective truth. And I think some listeners might be, or at least in my head, there's an objection coming from someone who says, what is with all of this talk about objective versus subjective? And I think part of this stems from the fact that we live in the age in which we do, and, you know, not in, say, I don't know, the Middle Ages, for example. If you went to the Middle Ages, so before the, far, long before the Enlightenment, before the modern era, um, we probably wouldn't have as many people saying, well, he's just speaking his truth, right? Because truth be doesn't nonsense. mean to people what it does. Truth doesn't mean to, like, a 15th century um cabbage farmer what it means to us today and so we have to be you know we have to be clear that we're talking about a truth that is a lot bigger than word means today when people say my truth or your truth or her truth which is all these are subjective 
experiences. I'm not saying that they're invalid experiences, but when we are talking about the truth of God, we're talking about a completely different category of truth than that which is relativized to the individual experience. We're talking about something outside of the individual. It, it really, it would not have made sense to a medieval mind to say my truth or your truth, because there is no my truth or your truth. There is only the truth. And we have to fit ourselves conceptually into that somehow or another. And so I think part of part of Colin's emphasis on uh, praising of the external God is because uh, largely in the modern world in which, or I guess you could say postmodern world, which we now inhabit, the gods are all internal, the people. Uh, and people are kind of returning to a kind of idol worship. Yeah, but, so, so what makes a good worship song, in summary, with regard to this thread of discussion, um, the emotional content of the song responds to some kind of objective truth. Songs where the emotional response is largely just subjective, like it's just it's just talking about the person's own story or their own experiences. Um, and we've talked about this too, or maybe a subtle way of framing objective truth, but only as it uh, understood through the lens of of a particular subjective experience. Like that's a bit of a problem too. Um, or um, songs that just reflectively praise without any kind of objective truth. Uh, I think I would hesitate to recommend songs like that. So a good, a good or a great worship song is, is gonna have the emotional part of the, the emotional content of the song anchored in response to something objective about God. Yeah. And just to underscore what, uh, what I was saying a moment ago, it's not wrong in Colin's example for someone to think the Lord will provide means I who don't have a job right now will find a job if God gives me one. Or I who don't have a child right now will have a child if God gives me one. Or I will have a husband if God gives me one. Um, those are all legitimate ways in which God does provide for his people. But that expression, the Lord will provide, does have an objective origin, right? This is what Abraham said when God did provide for him a substitute sacrifice for Isaac. And so we can look at that and say, look, wow, marvelously, God does provide, has provided, and will provide. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So so even, you know, when you're singing a song that talks about God providing, do think about, think about ways in which God has provided in a subjective way. But know that those are just, even those are just uh, echoes of the greatest provision that you could have possibly have, which is that Christ has been provided. The, the ram that Abraham received was a beautiful provision of God. It saved the life of his son, points still yet to Christ. Like, like it's good that Abraham praised God for the lamb, but it's better now that Abraham praised God for Christ, if that makes sense. And that's a that's a so so it's totally reasonable that we think about these subjective things, but but if we just if we if if that's the end of what where we're reflecting on, well, I don't know, like anybody can do that, you know, anybody can thank the universe for something good happening. Absolutely. Well, listeners, thank you so much for uh, tuning into this episode of the Worship Review, where we discussed many things about 
what makes a worship song great as opposed to being merely passable in our opinions. Uh, as as uh, that statement makes clear, these are our opinions, and uh, they may differ from yours. And if they do, we would love to hear from you. So you can write to us at feedback at theworshipreview.com. And if you've been helped by this uh, podcast or any of our episodes, uh, we would humbly request that you consider supporting us uh, as we continue producing these. And we look forward to being with you again next week. You've been listening to The Worship Review. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave a comment, or email us at feedback at theworshipreview.com. We accept donations at anchor.fm slash theworshipreview and patreon.com slash theworshipreview. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.